Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Russ here. Like ours, as we're going to demonstrate tonight. This is Mike, by the way. That's Mike over there on <laughs> yeah. the other mic. Mike on the other mic. Mike on the mic. Well, that's an old, uh, that's an old uh, hip-hop uh, thing. Yeah, but we won't mic. be discussing any hip hop recordings. So okay, well, if that's then, what you're looking for. Find a different podcast. It, I just snuck it in there. That's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am aware of that Beastie Boys track, though. I just want everybody to know that. Beastie Boys, we're showing our age. Yeah, we are. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we do that every week, though. So it, I guess it doesn't really right. matter. We could be right. mummified with some of the music we talk about, but yeah, it's a good thing we're not on video because then. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we definitely have radio radio faces. Yeah, definitely radio faces. Yeah, there you go. Radio That'd faces. be a good band name, by the way. The radio, the radio faces. faces. Yeah. So if anyone wants to name their jazz ensemble radio faces, you're welcome. Yeah. Just give us credit. <laughs> just, just you know, give us credit. You know, you know, get people to listen to us, and you know, it's all yours. It's the twentieth episode, and we're almost at the end of June here. Just a couple more days. It's summer. And that means Summer. that I have switched from hard liquor to cold drinks, cold liquor. You got <laughs> some is, frozen um, vodka or what not, do you have well, I didn't do that. That's a thought, though. I've got some uh, white wine. You know what I've got oh. today? I was in the liquor store the other day looking for wine because you know Prosecco is a nice one, too. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I bought, I bought a carton of sangria. Not a bottle, mind you, a carton. I think sangria is something you're supposed to make, you know, but yeah. they sell it in cartons here in, in Japan. It's imported. I guess it comes from you know Europe somewhere. Insane. In a carton, like a milk carton. But I've got a bottle of... <laughs> Pesciavino white wine. Now, what that is, is um, it's a very cheap uh, white wine that uh, comes in a bottle that's shaped like a fish. And the mm. bottle cap, there's no cork in this. It's a, it's a screw-off cap, and the uh, wine comes out of the uh, fish's mouth. Sort of the fish's mouth is the, is the uh, mouth of the bottle. Sounds so quite I'm tacky. Dr- I'm drinking that. It is tacky. Like adult music. Like adult music, yeah. <laughs> like our podcast, not like the music we talk about. That's let's, of let's not. be uh let's be clear about that. Okay, we can go on like this forever, I'm sure. Anyway, so yeah, I'm drinking Pesciavino wine. Uh which you know, I gotta tell you, for the price isn't bad. It's not like anything you wanna no. impress your date with though, so I've already had a <laughs> A nice Spanish yeah. wine, one of my favorites. So I've moved on to the official beverage of adult music, the Knob Creek single That is barrel. the official, yeah. This, this is the default. I, I wanted to put my that whiskey rocks in here, but the clink and clank will affect the sound quality of the broadcast. So I will suffer through a slightly warmed beverage. Oh, um, I never put um, uh, ice in that. No, ice you don't want. Yeah, you want to have the, uh, the soapstone. Whiskey oh, rocks, good. yeah, because they don't dilute your beverage. But yeah, I mean, you, you don't want to put ice in because because you want to be a man. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. That's right. We're gonna be manly on the yeah, manly twentieth episode. It puts it's it's a, it's a kind of whiskey that puts a uh, hair on your chest. As I don't I need more amp- of that. As I amply demonstrate, yeah. I don't need more of that. I could use some more up on my head, though. And you could use a lot more of that. I could use a lot more on my head. I shave yeah. my head, though, to to yeah. hide the fact that there's no hair up there anyway, which kind of begs the question: Why do I bother shaving it? <laughs> but yeah. there you go. It's one it's of those conundrums it's of life. One of those you know? problems of life. Yeah. Yeah. I like to keep people, you know, kind of. Actually, That's maybe why. I should just stop drinking mm. this and use it as a scalp tonic and see what happens then. Oh, well. Oh, yeah. Mm. 
I'll let you know next week. Scalp. <laughs> I think that would yeah, be good. Could be. <laughs> next week when our podcast up. is canceled because Russ, yeah. Russ can't make it. That's right. All right, we're kind of in a goofy mood here too, and I we don't are. know why because I have some bad news. Oh no! And uh, that is the fa- the uh, news came in yesterday that the American composer Frederick Jeffsky died. Now you're probably saying, "Who's Frederick Jeffsky?" Well, uh, he, yeah, he's not. He's fairly well known. His most well known pieces for the workers' song, uh, the people he did a set of piano variations, a set of very difficult piano variations on. On the workers' song, the people united will never be defeated. This is uh, a communist that, anthem. Um, yes, it was. Oh, yeah, but he's he, probably uh, why he I don't know who of, he is. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a good tune. Was this though. endorsed by Gus that. Hall? Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know who wrote it. Actually, I got. I have oh, okay. the CD. Okay, now here's the thing. There's a famous. There are several recordings of it now, but the the one I have, the first one I think that was really kind of well known, was by Mark Andre Amelan. And uh, so I, I, I really like this pianist a lot. So I listened to that, and it's pretty impressive. I mean, I think uh, if you're, <laughs> I think you're, I don't, I don't know how any communist is going to play this because I think they're too busy like fighting for the people to be able I don't to think practice they can this much. Stereos, Although, can they? That's the Soviet, yeah, but the Soviet maybe that's why because the Soviets were great um, pianists, weren't they? Yeah. The Russians still are though. They, they, they have this big gigantic room filling sound. They, they didn't had, make good right, stereos though. Okay, here here I am going into stereotypes now, but Russians are kind of they they have several artistic secrets that the rest of us just don't understand. One of them is how to make this big, huge room filling piano sound. I don't know how they do that. They get this gigantic sound, and the other one is um, in ballet. They seem to have this leaping ability that just you know transcends everybody else's ability to leap and spin and things like that. It's it's really incredible. I don't know, I don't know how they do that. Cold weather. Do you think so? Yeah. I don't know. You just practice a lot, I guess. Could be. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it's it's funny. It's an Amer- he's an American composer, but yeah, this is a uh, I think the communist anthem he set he did a set of variations on it, thirty six variations in fact, one of which is almost completely improvised. So they're asking like a classical uh, pianist to uh, improvise his own uh, variation, which Marc Andre Amelin did actually. But oh. and I think uh, most of the other ones who have recorded this have too. But you don't have to. He just gives you the option. Oh, okay. You can skip that one. Okay, but I want to. One thing I want to talk about him. I want to say about him is he. He also wrote a set of short pieces called the uh, North American Ballads. He wrote these in 1978 and 1979. They're four pieces for piano, and Amelan recorded two of these on the same uh, Hyperion album as uh, the People United Will Never Be Defeated. Um, they're piano arrangements of the songs. These are all American songs. Dreadful Memories. Which side are you on? Down by the Riverside, which we all know. And the fourth one, uh, my favorite, is Winsboro Cotton Mill Blues. The reason I like this so much is because um, I had a piano score of this, too. I probably still have it. I got the the piece before the actual blues starts. The piece begins with like a a machine rhythm where the uh, you're playing the uh, a a series of uh, black notes on the piano with your forearm in a rhythm that imitates like a mechanized uh, cotton mill. So it makes oh. that jump, jump, jump sound. It's really cool. Now, I, I love this because the first, Amlan recorded this. This is one of the two Amlan recorded. His is good, but there's one by uh, the pianist Paul Jacobs, um, you know, who, uh, you know, that I heard long, long ago that he was um, 
around in the 70s especially and he recorded a lot of modernist uh, music including like uh, these four works and his version of this is really like amazing he he gets that that sort of mechanical kind of factory sound out of the piano it's 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 really something to hear so paul jacobs uh winsboro winsboro cotton mill blues composed by frederick jeffsky check it out jeffsky is spelled r z e w s k i okay so it starts with an r not a z okay so check that out if you're looking for music this week anyway rest in peace rest in peace one of the great uh, american composers of the 20th century Right. The unknown ones, yeah. Before we get into uh, this week's selection, I want to remind our listeners that in the episode description, you're going to find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss this week. Everything's available on streaming. Yeah. And at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on our preferred streaming service, Deezer, where you can follow us at username adult music podcast you can also find our podcast on there as well as the playlist and if you can't see the full description or list on whatever app or service you're listening to because uh, the supporting notes are not completely implemented correctly on every app uh, if that's the case on what you're listening to just hop on over to our host site podbean where everything is in nice order and all the links work correctly now if you enjoy the podcast do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. And if you take a few seconds to give us a ranking or a couple minutes to write a review, that's going to help us uh, get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which will help us grow our audience. Uh, actually, this week I complained about the algorithm to uh, Podbean since they're our host. And uh, mm-hmm. there, were, there were some kind of, you know, suspicious podcasts with very few downloads that are always pinned at the top and you know we've got quite a few now we've got like more than 1600 you know floating in and out and i said what gives and then the next day we were right up at the top so somebody listened so thanks podbean yeah Uh, yeah i i want to point out in japan here there's a uh japanese expression um that the uh with the uh what is it? The, the the nail that's sticking up gets hammered down. Yeah, the Kugi. Yeah. Yeah. So so you can't uh, don't complain about anything. But I found that exactly the opposite is true. <laughs> well, you complain about something, you usually get your way. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. So I squeaky wheel the gets bit. the grease. That's the Western version yeah, of that. I guess the it's the opposite because the Japanese version is the opposite of what we say. Well, squeaky wheel there. gets the grease in our case. You know, we've but we've, in Japan apparently the. Uh, what, yeah. what's the, what am I saying? The nail that's sticking up gets hammered down. The, uh, the, 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 the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. That's yeah, I'm right. kind of thinking, yeah. they, because they had an English way of saying it. I can't remember yeah. the words. Okay. Yeah, yeah so anyway, that one. that's mm. good. And we've been uh, getting more and more listeners on uh, Amazon podcasts. Uh, that's our top one now. And uh, Apple and Podbean are in there. And thanks to all our listeners in India on uh Ghana and Gio Savant. Yeah, and great. To, glad to have you guys aboard. It's really great. Kind of excited about that. Uh, we haven't had any uh, emails from listeners in the past week. Uh, so uh, if you've got any questions or you'd like to make a comment directly to us, please write to our email, which is adult music podcast, all one word at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and we'll be sure to reply. I think we're going to, uh, actually, we're not going to go for Baroque or Baroque. We're going to go pre-Baroque this 
week. No, to this start is out. Baroque. This is, is early it Baroque? Baroque. It's early, early yeah, very Baroque. Early, yeah, this yeah. is the. Uh, this yeah. is. I have a book on my shelf, and uh, it's probably in a box. I just recently moved, so it's still in a box. But um, called Italian Baroque Masters. And uh, I just love the title, Italian Baroque Masters. I mean, the, <laughs> basically, there was the Renaissance, and there was all this church music, which a lot of it written by Italians, but pretty much by everyone in Europe. And then uh, the uh, Baroque period started, and uh, the Italians really kind of took the lead there in the early days. And then, of course, as we know, Germans and kind of, you know, brought it to its peak. Yeah. yeah. But um, I love the Itali- the early Italian Baroque Masters. People like Monteverdi, and then there are a lot of others whose music has been dug up over the years um, that were kind of, you know, examples of what, of the new art that, that uh, these, these people were trying to uh, create. And um, I love them because there's a real, yeah. Okay. Let me, let me compare it to you know, like people like say Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, he, um, his music is, is, I know the best composer ever. His music is extremely complicated, but highly listenable too, mm. but there's a lot going on in it. Now you could say, Oh, the Italian Baroque masters, they were earlier. It's very simple, but it's that simplicity. That's really so enjoyable. They, um, mm-hmm. they have this way of just kind of like putting the, uh, the uh the melody out there in, in this naked way and then just kind of developing it and sort of like doing variations on it and uh having these wonderful spr- springing kind of rhythms and it, it's there's something about it that really attracts me i just i just, I just love it so much but and and there are a lot of really great um very lively um keyboard works like this but this week we won't be talking about those we'll be Ooh. talking about some more melancholy ones in fact yes. um and graceful. we're listening and graceful because we're we're talking about an album called Melancholy Grace by the harpsichordist Jean Rondeau. Now he's a French uh, harpsichordist, um, and he um, I came across him because I have two other recordings of his. He did a fantastic uh, album of Scarlatti sonatas, I believe, a year or two years ago. It was probably two years ago now. Okay, and uh, highly recommend to listen to that. Seek it out on the harpsichord. And then last year, Russ and I both heard this uh, album called. Barricades or Barricade, I guess, because it's yeah. after the uh, Couperin piece, Barricade Mysterieux. Him and uh, Thomas Dunford, was it on the lute? Was it? I f- or is it Theorbo? Who? I can't remember who it was. I shouldn't say that. See, now I said it and I got to look it up because I, I don't want to mislead everybody, you know? I don't know. You see, if, if I was young, I'd remember all this stuff because my brain would be sharp. But then again, if I was young, I probably wouldn't be listening to classical music. Listening so. to this music. Yeah, you know, so it's a, it's kind of a, yeah, it's, it's just, you, you lose either way. Um, okay, Jean Rondeau. Anyway, I love this uh, harpsichordist a lot. He's got Let's two different see. harpsichords on this recording, too. It is Thomas Dunford, I guessed correctly. Okay, I remembered yeah. well, yeah, okay. Thomas Dunford yeah. on the lute. We like his playing a lot. We like his, we like both of their playing. So when this yeah. album came out, we were like, oh my God, we like fan yep. fanboys, you know. <laughs> Classical fanboys. Speaking of classical fanboys, I've uh, been like backstage at operas before, like when the uh, the uh, the uh, opera singers come out after they get out of costume and they're going home, and like there are these old guys there looking for autographs, and they're just like little kids trying to get this opera star to get their uh, their autograph. It was really weird to me, like fully grown <laughs> men, you know. Boy, I don't know. I'm not like that. I'm just kind of. I don't know. I still want the autograph though, but it's not over to the fat lady <laughs> signs. Like so what that? Say? It's not over to the fat lady signs. Not only to the fat lady signs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Except they're all kind of svelte these days. These days, I don't know how yeah. they do that? It's yeah, too bad. they kind of they change their image. Actually, that's not I mean, a bad thing. Good, yeah. I don't know. 
Yeah, because yeah. it's a little more believable that uh, these people are going to get it on with the other ca- characters in the opera, you know, kind of. Yeah, without um, some sort of health, yeah. bad health consequences or something. That's interesting. Back in the day, it was believed that, you know, your stage-filling girth uh, also meant a room-filling voice, that they were kind of like related somehow, you know. Hmm. But it uh, turns out not to be true as... Um, uh, Lisa Davidson's uh, voice tells us. Well, she's a big girl, but she has a gigantic voice. I guess it's the size of your lungs, you know. Yeah, I guess. Okay, anyway, Melancholy Grace, back to this album. This is the latest release by Jean Rondeau, and it is a, an album of uh, works by Italian Baroque masters and a few British composers, too. It's It's really early Baroque. Um, it starts out with um, Frescobaldi, and now these all have titles like Toccata Settima and like you know seventh Toccata, seventh Toccata in what? Probably in the collection that the book is kind of published in that we don't know anything about because we're not scholars, right? That are kind of actually researching this stuff. But um, yeah, so it's kind of hard to remember which is which. But it doesn't matter. They, these are kind of they're not necessarily like memorable works in the sense that you're going to go like humming them after you're done. They're actually kind of hard to remember because they're sort of, uh, they're, they're really sort of almost like exercises in uh, developing a theme. And, um, so a toccata means, um, touch technique. It's like you're demonstrating your uh, touch, you know, technique on the keyboard instrument. Now you're not hearing anything terribly acrobatic here, but what you are hearing is how to play the harpsichord because this was kind of a new thing at the time. All right, and they're kind of um, talking about that. Anyway, this starts out. The these are kind of more as as the title implies, melancholy works, and uh, they're played with a lot of grace too. It's a nice title for this album. It suits it mm-hmm. very well. Um, the Frescobaldi works. Uh, the first three works: Lorenzinius, Lorenzinius. Wow, what a name! Uh, Di Roma. Fantasy and Luigi Rossi Passacaglia, which is also a set of variations, are very slow, fairly long, ten minutes about, um, and they're all developing a theme. They're kind of doing a set of variations on a theme. Um, a Passacaglia would be a set of variations over a bass line, a repeating bass line, um, and these are kind of they're very spare sounding. But the thing is, works like this could come across as boring if they're in the wrong hands, but they're definitely not in the wrong hands here. These are, there's something really magnetic about Rondo's playing. Like he, I, I yeah. kind of feel like I'm kind of not hanging on every note, but really kind of focusing in and honing in on every note. He has a way of us exposing. He has uh, this, um, yeah. he, they have a, a lot of effective space, but yeah. that's sort of sandwiched within the rhythmic tension that keeps yeah. the energy going. Uh, just, at the right pace to convey, you know, that melancholiness of the character. And uh, I listened to this a few times on these cloudy, rainy mornings we've had yeah. this week, and it really just matched, but, you know, keeps you drawn into it uh, through there. It's not overly relaxing or boring in any way. There's enough musical tension and sort of passion in these pieces to pull you through from one to the next. But that's only part of them. Some of them are quite intense, actually. Yeah, they they do get intense. Um, and some of them get pretty complicated, like a Jan Pierzun's Wielinks, uh Fantasia Chromatica. So whenever you're doing anything chromatic, you're not really, uh, you know, yeah. you're kind of, you're really pushing the person's ears, although these days we have a lot more complicated think, than that. 
he switches to the more modern instrument on the chromatic ones, the uh, 18th century mm-hmm. replica harpsichord, mm-hmm. which uh, has a kind of wider tonal palette to it. He gets all these kind of tones out of it. Yeah. So he, he does a string of, um. oh, I should mention, but the harpsichord, you can't play say like a legato line like you can on the piano no. because the decay is too fast so the way you put across a melody has to do with um the way you space the um the notes you know you, you have to kind of be aware of the silences that you're that are that are just inherent in the playing of the harpsichord and sort of manipulate that and uh rondeau is really really good at this uh mm. he's he and i think that's what really compels me about this music okay interesting um Program. He does uh, five of these rather melancholy works, and then we get the Giovanni Picchi's Ballo alla Polacca, which is this very lively, uh, dancey type. Uh, the Picchi, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I like. Yeah. I really like this, and also the, yeah, all three of them. There are three of them on the on yeah. this album, and the bowl and, pieces. They're full of these explosive flurries of notes that are, uh, you know, a big contrast to the melancholy things. And it's just like yeah. his fingers are exploding. Yeah, in, uh, those notes. One of the things I like about the program is he um in the, in the when you hear the peaky work this really lively sort of dancey kind of piece it's sort of like a marker that this part of the program is over and now we're going to another one so after the first uh, ballo alla polacca um we hear three um works um by british composers uh, john bull and um an anonymous one okay <laughs> called pavana lacrime um and these are all played on the virginal, which is a much quieter instrument right. than the harpsichord. It's got a really kind of more tinkly sort of uh, sound to it. It's very mm-hmm. pretty. Um, again, recorded extremely, extremely closely. These out, these I told you uh, in in previous weeks that the harpsichord is a very quiet instrument. Well, the virginal is even quieter than that. I guess that's why it's called a virginal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's very dainty. It's very dainty. Yeah. And then when we hear the uh, peaky explode out of our speakers again, we know we're back into the Italian part of the um, of the program. We get some more toccatas. Then we hear another peaky ballo, and then two more um, works on the uh, virginal. This time by um, well Antonio Valente, his Italian, and then we have uh, Orlando Gibbons, you know, who I believe was British as well. And then we end with the uh, pavan. And I think this one. Um, okay, we we actually don't end with the pavan. No, um, it's Dowland. Well, here's the thing. I have a CD of this, and the pavan is the last listed track. And on the same on the last track, which is nine minutes long, there's there's about two or three minutes of silence, like you know, in your 1990s CDs. Uh-huh. And then we hear the unlisted last track, which I had to look up, and it's John Dowland, uh, Lacrime Vere. Yeah. Um, seven Tears, number seven. Uh, not labeled on the CD. And That's I was like listening to the, yeah, I was, I was kind of wondering why they did that. Like, you're going to know what this is. <laughs> you know? I mean, what is this? I this is to... uh, Erato? Hmm. It's Maybe unerato, that means yeah. erratic or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it just, does happen sometimes li- though, you know. Erato happen. is actually, we, we have to be careful because Erato is one of the muses um right. so we know actually she's the most it's quite funny erato is the uh muse of erotic or sensual poetry right okay in the greek world i have okay. any number of recordings where there's a track that's not credited and sort of pops up on the end of a long silence so 
Right. They did this a lot in the 1990s, and I yep. used to hate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you'd hear this song. You didn't know what it was. It was supposed to be a big surprise. I'm like, can this... Do I do I really need to be hearing this uh, throwaway track? I mean, it was good when yeah. The Clash did it with Train in Vain, but... Uh, that was a good song. Usually these are, just, these are just kind of throwaway yeah. tracks that you don't really need to hear. I mean, Dallin obviously is not a throwaway track, but no. you know, why, didn't, why didn't they list it on the CD? I was a little uh, kind yeah. of weirded I guess out by this that. this is 78 minutes of music, so it is a long recording. Um, it's very long. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Dallin is always a very happy thing. Anyway, th if you like harpsichord recordings, and I know a lot of people don't because um, I often get this uh, from people. They say, oh, can you recommend some Baroque music, but I don't like the harpsichord. <laughs> well, too bad. I, I don't think I can. Uh, I think there are maybe three works of Baroque music I can recommend to you then. I think especially like <laughs> you know? if you took the uh, Bach recording we had last week and, you know, paired that with this in a listening session or you know, spread it out, you'd, you'd see the really, you know, vast sort of emotions and uh, yeah. moods that the harpsichord can evoke, especially, you know, in the Baroque era, because there's completely different sort of feelings and uh, nuances in, in last week's harpsichord and this week. And yet they're both, you know, really interesting and lovely recordings. So... Yeah, in fact, that's that's actually a good idea. People should think of doing that because the uh, you'd hear not only the difference in instruments because these two instruments sound very different. Well, he, in fact, three instruments is a version right. on this one too. Yeah. Um, not only, but different approaches. Rondeau's approach is very austere. He's yes. really going for something uh, just very technical, whereas uh, Esfahani is kind of more. Uh, flam flamboyant. Can you be a flamboyant harpsichordist? I guess so. Guess. But there's a sort of um, you know, unfetteredness to his uh, mm. approach. You know, he'll like really kind of throw a lot of interesting new sounds in. And the different sounds that the harpsichords can get and when the different harpsichordists use them. Yeah. It's all pretty interesting. It kind of reminds me of those old silent movies where you'd, you'd um, be watching the movie and then they somebody would put like a colored kind of sheet over the... Uh, the lens right, for a, and you'd be seeing like it's thing, nighttime yeah. it's blue or it's right. purple or whatever so i feel like that's what happens when they change the uh, tone of the harpsichord like that you're getting that sort of effect out of this music that's always the same yeah this one i mean it is a lot i enjoyed this a lot i just want to say that this is a great yeah. record i think everybody should listen to it if you're interested there's a lot of minor pieces for that melancholy thing but then it's know, melancholy those, rainy day gray day music yeah but then like i said these very explosive the picky and the bull pieces you're like yeah. his fingers are just you know, bursting out, but it's a different kind of energy than we heard last week with the uh, Esfahani, all you know in the similar time period. So it, it gives you a real scope of what the harpsichord is capable of in technique and mood and different tones from the various instruments. And I'm not, you know, a super harpsichord fan. I don't listen to it all the time, but I do enjoy it at certain times. And you know, these two recordings I found really satisfying. And yeah. uh, this one, yeah, especially like a rainy morning or something like that, uh, it really creates yeah. a good mood. And uh, it the program is, well, as you alluded to, it's sequenced well. So it it takes you on kind of a journey. It's not yeah, just nice program. sort of a flat thing. Yeah, the program is well thought out. Very creative in its thought. And it's all music that you probably don't know unless you listen to like early Baroque music all the time. A lot of these works have been recorded by other like, harpsichordists but um you really got to be seeking these types of recordings out in order to have heard them they're not going to just be 
you know, you're generally not going to hear them in a movie or yeah. <laughs> something like that. Anyway, it's a it's a good introduction to it. It's it's kind of it's it's fa- it's a fairly grayish kind of recording as far as the music goes. Okay, mm-hmm. he he does a lot to bring it alive, but um, it's but I'm saying it's not this joyful, dancey kind of music, except for mm-hmm. one or two it's, pieces. Uh, mood, yeah. I wrote moody and spacious, sometimes yeah. brooding, but there's some very stately and technically amazing uh, numbers mixed in there too. So yeah, stately is actually a good word for the. Baroque, they enjoyed stately because yes. they had yeah. a lot of kings and things like that, and they had to enter the room. So, uh, stately music was necessary for that. The king, yeah, the king. It's good to be the king. All right. Speaking of the king, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good or <laughs> transition or not. King or prince? Well, this oh, the king. Yeah, you mean Sony, right? That's king what you meant, of- right. No, not Sony, <laughs> no. but I mean the uh, I mean Mozart. Oh, okay, we haven't done king. the well. He's one of one of the uh, the three kings, uh, if we may they borrow a term from uh, yeah from from uh, the early Christian, you know, nativity story um, of um, <laughs> God. That's so lame. <laughs> Classical <laughs> music. Can I, can I just not not have said that? Is that <laughs> so, has he raised that? I was trying. I was reaching for something, and I just—it it wasn't there. Uh-huh. I kind of just grabbed a handful of air. Um, all right, um, Mozart. This is our first uh, in twenty episodes. Uh, this is my our first Mozart um, recording, and Mozart is one of my favorite composers. Mozart and Brahms are my two favorite composers, and those are the next two composers we're going to talk about. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, this music has been recorded a million a lot. times. <laughs> yeah. A lot, yeah. I, but I never get tired of hearing new new performances of it. They're always a little different. Um, to be honest, I've heard so many different recordings of Mozart performances that most of them annoy me because I've gotten <laughs> to the place where I know kind of what I like. You know, when right. people kind of do something, you know, right. that, you know, and I want it to be like this way. Okay, you can do anything you like, but do this. You know, and a lot of the times they don't do that. They're trying to do something different. Okay, right. and and in in okay, I have. A, Okay, so anyway, let me just t- tell you. This is called uh, Mozart Momentum 1785 by the pianist Life Over Ansnes, a very famous uh, pianist. I believe he's Norwegian. And the Mahler Chamber Orchestra. Now, the year 1785 turns out to be one of the key years in Mozart's compositional activity. And uh, this album is going to be the first in uh, a set of two albums. Uh, there's going to be one in on 1786 as well coming out next year. Uh, so he's um, sort of putting his program together around this uh, fertile year in Mozart's composition, compositional output, which is I thought was a pretty intriguing idea. It would kind of be nice, you know, you get to hear mm-hmm. all this music that was going on in Mozart's head really at, at about that time. All right, the program is Piano Concertos 20, 21, and 22. Um, 21 maybe people our age or older will remember the middle movement was in the movie Elvira Madigan. Um, I remember that was like a big deal when I was a kid. It was like the Deutsche Grammophon album that had the Elvira Madigan movie poster on it. Um, Anyway, anyway, nobody remembers what that is anymore. Uh, Piano Concerto Number no. Twenty was written at around the time of uh, Don Giovanni, with well, 1786. That was Don Giovanni. So there's kind of a 
a, a kind of brooding sort of uh, atmosphere to this that I really like. This is one of my favorite piano concertos by Mozart, number 20. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and those are the three piano concertos. We also get the piano quartet in G minor played <laughs> with uh, the uh, – who's who's playing this? Oh, it's, it's actually a set of um, – it's not like a a set group. Uh, Anz Ness plays with uh, Matthew Truscott on violin, Joel Hunter viola, and Frank Michael Gurman. Gurman? Guthman. Guthman. Sorry, I can't see the T. Okay. Frank Michael Guthman on the cello. So the piano quartet. And then there's um, Fantasia and C minor for solo piano, a really dark, brooding work. Don't let the name Fantasia fool you. It's like a there's nothing funeral, really. Uh, funeral music, yeah. Well, We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, and yeah. then there's a Masonic funeral music, which actually is funeral music. Right. All right. Now, there's a. I have the CD of this. There's a whole note in the booklet, which I didn't read, <laughs> <laughs> because I figured, oh, I know all about this music. I should have read it just to know what the uh, what the uh, what the program is after, because it does seem kind of dark and brooding. They might have gone into Mozart's biography a little bit, but anyway. Let's start with the performances because I feel this was a really mixed bag. And, and that's especially the case with the first uh, work, Piano Concerto number 20 in D minor, K466. Now, if you are unfamiliar with this work, um, listen to, I, I guess, Murray Pariah's recording would be mm -hmm. certainly among the best of these. It's a little, the sound is a little dated now because uh, he uses like a larger string section than would be used today but nevertheless it's a really beautiful beautiful performance and it really set the uh, benchmark for me long ago i've since heard other great recordings uh, richard good has a great one too check him out um american uh, pianist all right now the thing about this is okay when people hear mozart they they generally think um oh mozart's music is um it's really happy it's um um uh, what, what do you, I can't think of the words here. Let's see. Light, it's, um, it's, it's happy, kind of, it's, um, pleasant, that kind of thing. Now, the thing is, this, uh, piano concerto number 20 is not, the opening movement is not supposed to be pleasant. It's supposed to be dark and brooding. But we have lived through the 20th century and the assault of, uh, amplified music, like in rock and roll, <laughs> not to mention, uh, you know, constant noise coming from the street and things. And our ears are ruined, okay? We also have heard, if you're a classical fan, the Rite of Spring. And uh, we heard, like, uh, Mahler, like, uh, putting his heart attack in musical form in the Ninth Symphony by piling different chords on top of each other. So our ears are too spoiled to really get the, uh, the real darkness of this, okay? Okay, because the darkest sound that Mozart is capable of making is kind of will seem pleasant to us, relatively speaking. All right, so you got to keep that in mind. This is a kind of a dark uh, movement, and uh, it's kind of brooding. The, the middle movement's a little um, kind of slow and pleading, and then it's got this happy uh, kind of third movement. I don't want to say darkness to light, but it kind of cheers up at the end. Mm. And uh, Mozart has these wonderful like turns of phrase that really just kind of make me smile, and that's one of the reasons why he's one of my favorite composers, because when that comes out, it's just like this unexpected ray of sunshine that just breaks through the clouds, and like you're like, wow, you know? Um, but the problem is, this particular performance doesn't really put those qualities across. I was really disappointed with this. Um, let me see. I actually wrote some... I, I had a lot to say about it, and I wrote some of them down. Okay. I feel like... I don't want to say this. Uh, it, it's not metronomic, but it's kind of like a really. There's not really much flexibility to the rhythm 
in this performance. Now, for, I need to mention, um, Ansnes is also conducting the orchestra, and I feel like this is a bit of a problem. He, um, he's he's kind of there's there's real stiffness in the orchestral playing in this particular uh, work, and in his um, playing, it's very good. But he's not. He again, he he he's not really. He doesn't have these little, uh, like elastic kind of like elasticity to his rhythm. It's airs on the side of the metronome. That's what I said. It's not metronomic, but it's kind of more steady in that place. And I think that hurts the music. You're not you're not really drawing out a lot of the uh, more expressive qualities uh, when you do that. Um, it's I think this this particular movement is just taken a little bit too slow, and it's a little too like gray sounding. Um, some of the really joyful uh, turns of phrase in the third movement don't really come across as joyful to me. Uh, there's no real spring to the rhythm. So I thought that this particular performance of the 20th piano concerto was not very good. There are much better ones. Okay, next comes piano concerto number 21, the one I told you about Avari Madigan. Um, strangely, this one's a lot better. I don't know why. It's a little more <laughs> elastic sounding. Um, the um, middle movement is has nice sensitivity to it. Um, and uh, the third movement... Uh, you know, it's, it, it goes on into its C major key. I don't know what it is. Maybe this one inspired him more. Maybe he kind of, you know, got it. But um, it's like night and day. There's a real Jekyll and Hyde quality to this, uh, to hearing these two works um, together. This is what makes me think I should have read the booklet. <laughs> there was something <laughs> in there, you know. All right, next comes um, the Fantasia in C minor. This is a, a solo keyboard work, and it's a really brooding work. It sounds very fragmentary. There are these mm. melodies that get interrupted, like cadences are interrupted, and you're kind of – it gives you kind of a lost feeling to hear it, not something you would normally associate with Mozart, but Mozart right. was a man of many moods, okay? Uh, we, we tend to think of him in the movie Amadeus writing all this genius music, and he did, but it's not all <laughs> – you know, happy and, you know, kind of playful the way he kind of comes across in that movie. Um, so this is a pretty good performance. It's heavy. He he goes for the heaviness, but it's appropriate here. It works pretty well. Uh, this is a very, very dark and uh, seemingly hopeless uh, sort of interpretation of this work. I guess it's good. I think I'd rather hear um, maybe Stephen Huff play this or something. He, he did a recording of it that I liked. Okay. Uh, next comes the piano quartet in G minor, and this one, this is a chamber work. This one suffers from the same uh, problems as the twentieth piano concerto do. Again, lack of elasticity in the rhythms. I think uh, Anz Ness is probably directing, and he's probably directs with an iron fist. He's kind of he you know, he's telling you know people are have to you know having to do what he's telling them, and uh, it's just kind of coming across as just being very metronomic to me. Okay, I'm not getting that elasticity that I like. In this music, next comes the Masonic funeral music, uh, K four seventy seven, which I don't really know. This is, I think, this might be the first time I've ever heard this. Um, I, probably, I may have heard it before, but I probably wasn't. I don't remember it really well. It's it's a pretty dark, bleak, sad work. And then comes Piano Concerto number twenty two, and we end this album on a happy note. This uh, this works very well. Again, like Piano Concerto twenty one, it's very good. Um, this one kind of sounds a little, little bit more regal, I think. There's, there's a sort of uh, stateliness. Stately? I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's kind of a, yeah, a stateliness or a, um, 
Oh boy, yeah, the Peshavino is affecting my brain tonight here. A um, nobility, let's say. Yeah, that's nobility. the word. Nobility to this uh, particular work. And I liked this particular performance. There's a, there is elasticity in the rhythm. But it really puzzles me. This whole pro- um, performance, this whole program put together has this real Jekyll and Hyde quality. Sometimes hmm. it's warm. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's got this kind of nice sort of um, elasticity to the rhythm. Sometimes it's just like too rigid. I I don't really know what to make of it. I, I thought of Jekyll and Hyde. Um, I'm not going to... I think yeah, if you like The Pianist, you should hear it, but um, I'm not going to recommend this one. I thought it was, oh. it was not my favorite Mozart oh. recording. It's not bad. I mean, but I'm just right. not... I just, I've heard so many Mozart recordings that I'm just well, going to go for something else. There are a lot of alternatives out there. I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the playing is metronomic, uh, yeah. sort of locked in, maybe a bit too much. Uh, mm-hmm. The good points I found with it... Uh, I really enjoyed the the balance between the piano and the ensemble. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I felt think I was that, too focused on the, <laughs> the performances to think about that, but it's, that that's was true. done really well. Uh, yeah, it, I felt that in, it never was one overpowering the other. I could hear everything really well, and with those combined, the dynamics were paid uh, well uh, attention to, and so I felt. Actually, there were a, a lot more dynamics than I've heard in other recordings uh, right. here. The loud, you know, loudness and softness and the degrees in there were done really well. And also, overall, the sound quality of the recording is very good, hmm. uh, which you know may lead you to focus on more other uh, subtle things that could not be up to par with some other recordings because this, as you say, has been recorded by so many other uh, people. So you know, you have to do something a little bit different or at least live up to the standards set by other groups. So exactly myself, not being a huge Mozart fan, although if I'm in the right mood, I do like to listen to Mozart. I actually enjoyed this performance Mm. uh, just because of the nice balance and clarity. And I was drawn into the dynamics. Uh, I didn't feel like I heard anything new here, but I just generally enjoyed the, you know, the performances. Uh, I hadn't, at you know, while listening to this, I didn't go back and compare it to some other recordings I have of it. So, right, yeah, I have some of these in my head because I've heard them so many times. Right. They really cheer me up. A lot of Mozart uh, music. Um, yeah, in fact, I just want to kind of add to what you said. And piano concerto number twenty, the one I was complaining about. One of the things I did notice is the piano is recorded very closely, not yeah. very, but it's closely, and uh, you can hear every note he plays and that's not always the case in other Mozart recordings and I really enjoyed that particular quality it's just the overall performance of that particular mm. work I didn't like now you can hear the piano of course in the other concerti as well in uh, on this recording and I liked those performances mm-hmm. a lot better but again I call this Jekyll and Hyde is, is my <laughs> description of this it really has that weird quality it's like two different you don't know what you're going to get from piece to piece right. you know and I think that kind of made me a little Unsettled, 1785. There you go. Anyway, on to two of my favorite works ever, the two Brahms piano concertos. I love these. Um, My favorite recording of these um, is probably Nelson Freire with uh, Ricardo Chailly conducting Mm -hmm. an orchestra. I don't remember which one. Uh, Probably the the concert cabal, but again, uh, I probably got that wrong, but uh, (laughs) I should look it up. Maybe I will. I also like Stephen Huff. uh, did his recording on Hyperion is really good of these works too, so those are kind of my benchmarks for that. And uh, the old uh, Emil Jalel's recording 
Or Gillels. Well, this or one, Emil Gillels. You get this really old piano here, which yeah, it's uh, a, mixes things it, up. It's an era. Yeah. This was re- okay. Now this is played by Andras Schiff, one of the great uh, pianists of our uh, of the 20th century of our era. Really, he's he's a bit old now, but he's now exploring the uh, the the uh, Luthner or something. Right? Yeah, it's not a it's not a forte piano. It's an early piano. It's about it's a piano from around Brahms's era. 1859 is what it says. Yeah, here. yeah, and um, it's got more, it's got a more like tinkly sound than a modern grand piano. Yeah, and um, I want to say, um, listening to these now, because he's playing that piano, he needs to have a different approach to the music than you would on a modern grand piano, because the sustain is of the notes is not as great. Yeah, and there's not much low end on it compared to a big Steinway. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's not much sustain, not much low end, um, and. One of the nice things about it, though, is that a lot of the detail in the playing comes out, and yep. I really liked that. That might also be the miking, though, because I think this this uh, instrument is recorded very closely as well. Um, but what was interesting, I thought this... Now, the thing is, this is a really different uh, performance than the ones I'm used to, but I really loved both of these okay mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the the both piano concertos. I thought they were both great. Um, this is a recording I'm going to listen to more often, although it's not my favorite one because I prefer those. I prefer to hear this on a modern grand piano. And I, I like the nobility that the modern grand piano uh, is able to produce. Now here, there's so many interesting little details here that I can't really um, articulate them. He, um, rather than like trying to play like legato lines on a, an instrument that doesn't really um, sustain very well, you hear him playing a lot of yeah, then quasi staccato type lines, like the notes are sort of disconnected, or these these big runs. It's it has a kind of a bouncing quality to it. A good um place to sample would be the very beginning of the uh, second piano concerto, the opening uh, piano chords. Usually, you'll hear these on a piano played like dun 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 dun. You know, they'll they'll kind of be quasi legato, mm-hmm. but here there's kind of like a, a he's almost like bouncing from one chord to another. It's an interesting effect, and I rather liked it. I thought uh, this fit into his whole um, interpretative plan. A lot of the playing here, there's some really virtuosic parts um, that he plays much more slowly. Um, than um, you would normally expect on a what you normally hear on a modern grand piano, and I suspect that's because of the limitations of the instrument. But nevertheless, um, Schiff, he's rather a special pianist. It's like everything he plays just sings. He has this like singing quality to his playing, and even without the uh, availability of like a really solid legato on this particular instrument, he still manages to make every line, even the figuration, sing. And I really enjoyed that throughout this entire performance um it, it, it's hard to really say anymore i think i think it really needs to be heard it's very different if you know these works this is a good one to hear because uh this is a good performance to hear because it will make you sort of rethink some of what you um kind of expect or know about these works i really enjoyed this a lot i don't know what else to say about it except that it was uh I guess I guess it lacked a little bit of the the darkness of some of the big dramatic uh, quality of the uh, modern piano versions, but uh, nevertheless, I think a lot of um, musicality comes forth, and I really just love Schiff's playing in general, so I would recommend this. When you first listen, if you know these pieces or you compare them to another one, you're going to be struck by the difference in the tonal quality and the presence right. of this piano, um, and then. 
you know, it's a trade. I feel it's a trade-off overall. Uh, on the mm-hmm. plus side, you're going to get a lot more clarity here, and then you don't get the competition between the huge piano sound and the orchestra. So that means you can you can hear more of the orchestra. And then you can also hear, you know, some detail in the piano too. Um, yeah. You know, so it, it sounds quite different. And you know, of course, he's, you know, changing his approach and uh, technique for this special for this instrument, you know, compared to you know playing on a modern uh, Steinway or something. And, and and so that makes it interesting and and different. And I thought, you know, outside of those things, the overall performance was great. And he sort of uh, created a really good arc for you know both concertos, and you yeah, know, you could see he, you know, he was following you know the bigger theme through the movements right. to the end. So I like that. That's um, important to do too, because these are gigantic works that yeah, need to be held together really by the big. musician. They're like fifty minutes each. You know, so that's a long piano concerto. It's a long time to be playing the piano. And that said, those you know, in one sense, those in- effects are interesting. But I felt it's a bit of a trade-off with this old older piano sound because you do lose some of that sustain and grandness to it. And the way the piano sounds too, well, the, it sounds okay in the recording. I, I don't mean the technique, I mean the recording. So the, the overall sonics, including that older piano sound are good, but they're not great. And the whole orchestra isn't great either. So I feel like, uh, you know, f- for the overall clarity of the recording on this ECM release, uh, it could have more detail uh, to bring out, you know, what is uh, instrumentally different here. It's not particularly detailed or particularly dynamic. It's it's good, but not great. Um, yeah, but so, nevertheless, it is fascinating, I thought. Yeah, I it's interesting it in the differences here. So. I should mention the uh, the orchestral body playing this work is the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. That's a and nice name. The um, the the uh, booklet doesn't indicate who's conducting them, but uh, so I think they, he's either, conducting either, from the piano. Actually, yeah, I believe either I read he's conducting. Yeah. I was thinking either he's conducting the piano or they're a self-conducting orchestra, which happens. The Orpheus Chamber Orchestra can right. conduct themselves, but in fact, there are photos in the uh, booklet that show him kind right. of like facing the. Uh, the audience and uh, conducting, but the, and it turns out he's a pretty good conductor. I mean, I thought these um, performances flowed really nicely. He's got that this wonderful yes. sense of melody. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. got this wonderful sense of melody, and I think it just comes out in everything he does. Um, if you're really looking for uh, to hear, uh, if you, you you know which pianist you want to match a pianist with a certain uh, work or something like that, and you don't know who to go for, Andrew Schiff, you can never really go wrong. He's really fantastic. Yeah, he's a really highly melodic. Uh, performer you know pianist and he uh he's most famous for his recordings of like the the bach um solo piano works mm-hmm. so he uh and he brings out a lot of um melodic you know musicality in those as well he's he's fantastic he's a real he's a real artistic treasure and he's uh you know he's getting old there so um Oh, by the way, fun fact for those of you living in Japan, uh, Andrew Schiff has, I, I believe he has a Japanese wife, but he does come to Japan quite often. And uh, I have it on good word on, on, uh, from people in the know that he likes to play pachinko. Wow. <laughs> so there you go. A little fact hmm. about Andrew Schiff, Hungarian pianist. 
Wow. All right. So and anyway, I recommend would... this record. It's it, this is not a first choice. Okay, if you've never heard these works, go for like uh, I'll recommend Nelson Freire mm-hmm. and uh, Ricardo Chai con- conducting the. Con- oh, it's not the Gavan has Concert Gabal Orchestra. I think. I think the, this would be good as a comparison, and you know, to hear yeah. different different aspects that might not come through on other recordings, and see this period instrument a little bit. You know. Yeah. So this is better. something if you know these works already and you want to kind of hear them maybe in a different way and in a way that's really um that works um i then i would recommend this it's it's a little different okay mm-hmm. if you don't know the works go for something else <laughs> yeah yeah start somewhere else but yeah really nice yeah i'm gonna find the, if he comes to kyoto and plays pachinko i'm gonna you gotta find, find him out. i was oh the gavant house orchestra i got it wrong it's not the concert about god I, I get so confused with these things oh, okay okay R- ricardo chai gavant house orchestra uh nelson Freire piano brahms piano concertos that's my favorite one yeah there you go all right and that's all for classical music this week all right hmm. all keyboards yeah okay yeah speaking of which um there are a lot of um classical keyboard and piano recordings coming out right about now so we'll be talking a lot about those in coming weeks so stay tuned if you like the piano can't go wrong there i've got some good jazz uh keyboard things coming up in a few weeks i'm waiting for some things to be released i wanted to actually find all keyboard things to go with this but i couldn't find uh something i wanted to talk about although there are some really famous uh, releases this week. I couldn't find enough things that I liked to say about them. Uh, <laughs> so I won't I won't say any more uh, other than big names have been excluded from my list. Yeah, uh, but that's, you see, that's the thing. You should put them on and pan them. People, well, people want to know because they want to, because I think people, um, you know, they hear the big name, they want to hear the album, they want to know, they want to get a little insight into it. I think you should put them on occasionally. I could do that you know? once in a while, but I'd rather yeah. give some attention to something new. Yeah, well, and, there's that uh, too. I think it's a good ears idea. on that. And so that's what I've done for the piano choice this week. And this, this one, is rewarding in another way. Yeah, this is I, a good it's one. certainly rewarding to me as I get to listen to all this great new music. Yeah, this is uh, by Israeli-born pianist Roy Moore, M-O-R, and it's called After the Real Thing. After the Real Thing. What comes after nice the real thing? thing? I don't know. A realer thing, I guess. Yeah, just on the Ubuntu label. Yeah. And uh, now Roy Moore is a f- interesting character. He's one of these guys with a resume that uh, is probably more impressive than most people that you know. After serving as a military paratrooper in the uh, Israeli Armed Forces and earning a university degree in philosophy, mm-hmm. he then became a software engineer with uh, Microsoft in Israel. But that wasn't enough because his true passion was jazz piano and he wanted to play as a jazz musician in New York. And so he did it. (laughs) And uh, now he's in uh, New York and performing. Can and, I just uh, say people like this who can just do anything and be successful at it? You know, I could, yeah, yeah. I could, I could do like one thing, and I'm not even that successful at that. I don't know. I jump don't know. out of planes with guns, uh, yeah, work I'm on not computer be stuff. Doing that anytime soon. And then he uh, jumped out of planes with guns too. That's something I'll never. Yeah, paratrooper. Do. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Um. And yeah, he's got a nice rec- record here. Uh, that 
Well, what's not, I mean, there are so many pianists on the New York scene now. How are you going to identify yourself, make yourself stand out? And what he does here is he brings a bit of his ethnic background for that little extra taste that makes all the difference, in addition to his fine uh, normal playing. So we've got uh, Roy Moore here on playing uh, piano on all the tracks. Uh, he's got Fender Rhodes uh, on one track here. Uh, and for the ethnic touch, we've got uh, Amos Hoffman playing the oud yeah, on uh, I really three tracks. Hearing this and song. that really uh, puts some spice here. And uh, Hoffman switches to uh, guitar on two tracks on six and nine, which I'll mention coming up. Uh, Miles Sloniker on bass on most of the tracks, uh, except a few. Uh, Ite Morci on drums and Davy Lazar plays flugelhorn on track four. And I got a few other musicians who switch off here. Marty Kenny on bass on tracks two and seven. Peter Tronmuller drums on two and seven. Joel Kruzik bass on the final uh, track 11. Also Jeremy Dutton. And uh, most of the compositions here are originals by Moore, except for uh, tracks one, seven, eight, and 11. Uh, one and eight are kind of traditional Israeli songs. Uh, the opening track, Echo Song, by Yohanan Zarai, and Eight, uh, Do You Know the Way, by Ephraim Shamir. And uh, these feature the oud, and so we get that uh, sort of nice uh, spice to these recordings. So starting out with that one, the Echo Song, we've got the oud on the introduction, yeah. uh, which sets this uh, interesting mood. The piano trio joins in on this gentle melody and more plays a nice melodic piano solo he has a really good pop sensibility too with melodies that you'll see on this recording and he has a lot of nice uh rhythmic figures we get a cool oud solo which you don't always get to hear when you hear the oud but uh, Hoffman is nice with that too uh the timbre of the instrument is nice with some cool intervals and he keeps that little extra exotic spice on here so it's a nice opening uh, number two. Oh, I want to point. I want to say something yeah. first. The, 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 you, you, you're using this nice word "spice" for the oud, and I think that's a good uh, mm. description. But it's not just the sound that the instrument makes. It's that the oud players, and I, I guess it's just the the, tra the training. They're always playing these like modes. You know, they right. kind of yeah. they they never do like things that are in like say a Western style. So I I'm, I think that's part of the because uh, I, I guess the oud is is an Arabic instrument, right. and they use the Arab makams yeah. or the uh, the modes to uh, right. play. So. It, it, I think that's what the spice is. It's, it's the sound and the yeah. kind of sequence of, you know. That's the way they learn played. to play. So w even if you give them, you know, you know, here's this Western progression, they'll find the modes in that. Yeah. And then it, you know, it adds that character I, within I the guess, same framework. Yeah. yeah. I guess the character comes from the, yeah, yeah. The using, because they all, they always use those. It's, I think it's really fascinating. I just love hearing it when I hear it. Yeah. And you don't get to hear it in jazz that often. Well, we had that. Uh, record we listened to what was it the Blue Makams uh, yeah the uh, this uh, Anwar Brahim yeah, yeah. Bra Brahim. Uh, that's a great he's, album he's fantastic too. Yeah. yeah and so this is sort of evocative of that uh, kind of mood sign here uh, track two is the title track after the real thing got uh, kind of a funky rhythmic intro nice bouncy melody uh, and then the piano solos over a moving bass line and then it gets really swingy and bluesy. And uh, Moore shows that he can swing well on this one and that he also doesn't overplay. You know, he shows some restraint 
uh, and tastiness uh, on a kind of swinging number here. So we get to see a different side of his personality. Yeah, after uh, the real thing, that one? Yeah. That's, yeah, number two. The I, I truck, just want to yeah. make sure I didn't miss yep. that one because I wanted to say, that if if we like say, you know, ended the podcast by playing like some, you know, we use our theme to play ourselves yeah. out. But if we could just play anything, I, this, I was just thinking when I heard this, this would be a great way to, play us out of the podcast it's got this really nice sort of comfortable feeling to yeah it. this is a good one yeah i like this it's one a lot funky and rhythmic yeah yeah then uh track three is called uh jerusalem mezcal hmm. now this is a really uh interesting one it's got this kind of ostinato bass riff and exotic oud opening and then the piano comes in on top of that with some blocky chords the tempo picks up into a chase and then it goes back into the bass riff for Oud solo over. And then he's really on the modes here. He, mm. he finds those modes uh, after, you know, you've been introduced to some other jazzy kind of things you're expecting. Yeah, yeah this really does have a Middle Eastern feel to it. It's very, very much. different than the rest of the album, yeah. even the even the works with the Oud on it. <laughs> and then the uh, rhythm is completely different. After the Oud, when the piano solo comes in, they return to the faster tempo that they established and... Uh, more builds some real excitement here with some fun rhythmic playing. And then the, uh, there's a little drum solo over the riff and chords uh, that gets a little quiet to the end. So that this one has yeah, got probably the most uh, maximizing of that Middle Eastern quality. Number four is called the Nicanor. And here we get uh, uh, Flugelhorn uh, joining in. And uh, Flugelhorn is Davy Lazar. This adds a little, you know, a variety to the program. Uh, it's kind of a playful tune. Uh, number five is uh, Daybreak. And this is just a very short and pretty piano interlude ballad track. It's over almost as soon as it gets started. This kind of cleanses the palette and uh, gets you ready for some more tunes. Uh, the next of which is Six Solar Reimagined. And here uh, Hoffman, the oud player, switches to guitar and he uh, kind of gains energy as it goes along through uh, this piece with the piano solo. And it comes down again at the start of a piano solo. Now Hoffman, you see his, his personality on the guitar is a little bit different. Uh, he's got some soft fluid lines and it builds nicely over Moore's rhythmic backing. And then after this to the familiar jazz standard, Speak Low. And uh, this is just piano trio. Uh, it's a nice... Uh, ballad treatment of this jazz standard. And Moore builds a nice uh, traditional solo here. And he shows here his nice sense of touch and also the balance with his chord playing. And uh, when they return to the melody, there's a nice extended outro uh, going out to the end of this song. So this is sort of in a real more traditional jazz kind of uh, feature. Uh, eight is called Do You Know Why? And the Oud returns here. And this is a Middle Eastern kind of uh, tune, but it's a very happy and upbeat. It's not one of these minor sounding modes. And uh, in the second half of the melody line, it's kind of hinting, I felt that like uh, the magical mystery tour of the Beatles, mm -hmm. that kind of... <laughs> that kind of cadence in there. And so wonder, a, this, do you know the way, right? Yeah, do you know the way? This isn't the uh, the, the Gladys Knight song, is it? Like, do uh, I don't believe so. San Jose? No, it's a different no, one. No, no. Okay. And so, uh, yeah. I was listening but, for that after the title, but I wasn't sure. Okay. No, uh, I believe this one is one of his originals, but uh, yeah, you, mm. you'll pick up on this kind of 
Beatles sounding uh, thing there. And the piano had some really nice touches here over the melody and uh, some rhythmic, nice rhythmic figures in the piano solo too. Uh, so this is a nice original one here. Nine is called The Follower and Hoffman's back on guitar here. This is kind of a contemplative tune, a really nice piano solo here that's subtle, but has passionate playing. And Hoffman's guitar is more searching here, but he's so quiet and hmm. the tone is so soft. I, I really want to, I felt like I wanted, if I was in the studio there, I'd go right over to his amp and just crank up the guitar because <laughs> he's like, it's, it's attenuated, uh, you know, too much here. I want to hear more of uh, uh, some dynamics in his solo here because he's playing really nicely. Uh, number 10 is called Playground. And this is a, a nice pop-sounding chord sequence. And Moore has a lot of fun soloing and showing creativity on the rhythm on this one. So he shows some real kind of poppy sensibilities on this tune that I enjoyed. And then uh, we close out the set with the jazz standard, uh, The Nearness of You. And uh, this is a you know, just a classic slow, gentle treatment of this standard. And here he shows uh, that nice touch that he has. Also uh, mature playing using space. And then uh, at the end, he has a nice kind of piano cadenza that speeds up com in comparison with the tempo that he played the tune, which I thought was a nice contrast uh, here. So he shows that he can do, you know, the traditional thing too. But uh, so there's so many players just, you know, they can operate in the standard uh, jazz mode that he's got, you know, something extra that he can bring from his own background. And so I thought that what, you know, basically shows this album is something that you should listen to uh, more as yeah, an enjoyable this, this, player. This last, track had a, this last track had a nice glow to it. I really like yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah. On a tune that's been played so much, but you know, he, he's made a program here with an excellent variety. He's got, you know, songs from his Israeli background, and then the oud give it that gives it that ethnic flavor to stand out. But he pulls in enough of the traditional things, and he shows he can be a very tasty player uh, just doing that too. So he's got just the right balance. Some other nice musicians, and yeah, I'd I'd like to go see him live, especially if he can get the oud player uh, doing this one. So give this one a listen. Yeah, he's uh, someone to look yeah. out for. If he's as good a, an architect as he is a piano player on this album, I want him to build my house. Yeah. Well, I don't know what he did at Microsoft, <laughs> but uh, obviously at he didn't Microsoft. make their software any better because it still yeah. has all the problems that it used to. But <laughs> all these updates I, never I, fixed I was kind of complaining the other day about like, because we, we, we use like Apple stuff yeah. here. And I think Apple is, it, I think it, modern Apple stuff is really terrible. It's just that everything else is so much worse, and that's why I yeah. keep using it. There's really no choice, you know? Yeah, you don't have a lot of options, but... I feel like it went downhill after Steve Jobs died. I don't know. Yeah, he had good ideas. This iMac yeah, still looks the same as the one I had before that, and the one before yeah. that, and the one before right. that. I guess the new ones are back to colors, but I think I had a colored one like about 15 or 16 years ago. Well, the thing is, I think there's like, there are, um, you know, there are engineers who kind of like uh, just build things. And then there are people with ideas. And that would have been like Steve Jobs, really. Yeah, you know, and Johnny had all these design ideas and stuff. And, good ideas, too. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like the ideas are gone now from like all computing. It's kind of just not interesting anymore. There was the iPhone. And then after that, that was like the last idea that even came out of any of this. 
That that is far. That's kind of artistically pleasing, anyway, or aesthetically pleasing. Everything else is now. It's all pragmatic now. Modern industrialism. Modern industrialism. (laughs) Brutalist. What? uh, (laughs) Like that artistic movement. Brutalism. Brutalism. Modern brutalism. Yeah. What's your art like? I'm a brutalist. I'm a brutalist. But That's despair of, not, yeah. because the next recording will put yeah. you in the mood of beauty, because this is yeah. really lovely recording. And it's called I Remember You yeah. on the Steeplechase label. And the American tenor saxophone is Stephen Riley. Oh, yeah. Uh, who I remember we heard, liking this one. Let's yeah, see. back in episode eight ah. with uh, Snorri Kirk, uh, ah. the Danish drummer or Norwegian born Danish drummer who we really enjoyed. Who's doing a lot of swingy things over there. Uh, and we liked that album and we heard the breathy and lovely sounds of Stephen Riley. Uh, breathy can, is the word. I yeah, will second he, you know, that. He, he can do, do the whole uh, jazz tradition, but he often settles into earlier periods uh, where he can relax a bit more and show his beautiful tone and sense of melody. And he does that here on this album which is uh, a mix of jazz standards, such as the title, I Remember You, uh, the jazz standard track, uh, but also some jazz originals from uh, jazz musicians. And we've got Riley on tenor sax here. And uh, the other outstanding thing on this album, and also a bit of a sad note, is the guitarist Vic Juris. Yes, I pulled this out too. Yeah, you know, he was uh, uh, the guitar yeah. playing is fantastic. I want to comment on that. Yeah, and uh, bass we've got Jay Anderson and Jason T. Why is that sad? What oh, I'll explain in a moment yeah. uh, here. Okay. Um, so, um, uh, Juris was Riley's uh, teacher at William Peterson yeah. Col- Patterson College, rather, uh, for the ensemble playing uh, course that he was in, and uh, unfortunately, so he co- he. You know, he stayed in touch with him and uh, uh, called him back for this recording. And uh, he was apparently at the end of his days here, although he didn't show any physical or uh, mental decline at the time of this recording. But unfortunately, he passed away a few weeks after this uh, from cancer. And so this is probably his last recording, uh, which uh, is really terrible because uh, the guitar playing on this album is really on another level. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, an, it's unique, too. Yeah. There's something about it that's really special, Beautiful which I tried to articulate. I'll tell you in a minute. And unique, and the tone is just fabulous. Um, mm. So uh, the collection of tracks we have, it starts with uh, uh, standard tune, You Stepped Out of a Dream, and this is done in the even beat bossa nova style. Mm-hmm. And right away, Riley's breathy tone has got you on the right. Brazilian beach. You're there. <laughs> Right yep. away, back to 1962. And that's where you want to be right now, yeah. isn't it? Come on, admit it. And then uh, Juris's <laughs> guitar tone, it's so fat and warm. I mean, there could not be any less treble on this tone. It's just so uh, fat and warm. Uh, Riley's mm-hmm. sax solo is effortless. And then when uh, Juris comes in with the guitar solo, it's very nicely articulated. There's some s- single notes contrasted with thick chords. Got a very nice bass solo here. And, you know, this brings you back to Stan Getz and Charlie Bird uh, as far as mood. But, you know, these guys have nothing, uh, you know, 
less than what they created together. So yeah, really lovely track uh, to begin the album out. Uh, number two is My Ideal, another standard. Uh, this gets the real slow ballad treatment, and but this is done as a swing. And the combination of, the, of Riley's uh, soft tone here in the guitar, oh, you see right away, it works equally as well on swing as bossa nova. And by now, you're in a track two. Whatever pissed you off today, you're going to have forgotten about it because you're going to be really relaxed because this sounds so great. And when yeah. you get into Juris's guitar solo, uh, there's some really lovely bends and articulation yeah. here. And then another tasty bass solo. And yeah, now you're going to, you know, going to have forgotten everything, uh, which will bring you up to track three. Another hang, hang jazz on, before, standard. Be, before you go on, yeah. my ideal one, there's one little detail that I really enjoyed on this track is right mm. at the end when um, uh, the, the the chord, I guess, resolves, I guess, whatever you'd call it in jazz. Um, um, Riley plays like this descending, like kind of pattern. And this three note descending pattern and he does it in this kind of staccato way it's like but he's got that breathy tone and that staccato and it goes yeah. down. it's just really fantastic just the whole sensuality of the sound really kind of yeah. rocked my world I thought it was great yeah <laughs> his his sound is like you know the, not too many people can can make a sound like he does uh, mm. just uh, the tone is beautiful you know some you know, people can do amazing things on sex but sometimes the you know, the timbre is not too different from, you know, like a Subaru horn or something. And so you, you excuse that sound for, you know, the technical uh, facility that sax can have. But Riley, you know, his sound is really beautiful. Um, mm. And um, and also his articulation can vary between the legato and these kind of, you know, really articulate tongues. And uh, he, he, you know, he places them just in the right locations. It's a really nice player. Hmm. Uh, three, another jazz standard. Uh, I'll remember April. And uh, so we get the intro sax riff that's uh, judged by the drums, but it's in a different key. And so it changes into the key and the melody. I mean, it gives you that shift uh, into the tune. And here, this is done in a nice samba beat. Uh, so that's kind of... Uh, Nice contrast uh, to the previous swing. We get solos all around, and the uh, bass solo gets up really high and melodic, which is a nice little touch here. But he always sounds really woody, as a bass player should. And this, um, it was really at this point, by the way, it was on this track that I realized that I was hearing some really great guitar playing, uh, and I yeah. tried to describe what he was doing. He plays these sort of staccato sort of yes, chords, I guess. And yeah. the chord is gone by the time you realize you've heard it. So you kind of yeah. hear it and then it reaches your ear and he's already onto the next thing. It's this really appealing kind yeah. of thing. It's, they're, it's, they're so short the way he plays. It's, it's, but it, but it really stays with you. It's, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. So I, I, mean, got, I, I, I found, realized I was hearing something special at about this point. I, I know I've heard him before, but I really felt kind of guilty with hearing how beautifully he plays on this album that now that he's gone, I mean, yeah, you know, he's, he's, we're not going to get to go more. to the, uh, the blue note and hear him then. It's we'll, kind of sad. Yeah. It's too sad uh, because yeah. uh, what a, what a tasteful, uh, complete player. This uh, guy was uh, Juris. Mm. Uh, for uh, wildflower. And this is a Wayne shorter tune uh, from the album. Uh, Speak no evil. 
which uh, you may have heard is a little bit different version uh, from the album uh, kind of uh, designed by the uh, way the guitar does the intro, which is Juris does really nicely here before the melody comes in. Uh, although the overall tempo is similar to the original. O'Reilly is a bit more aggressive here, but uh, his tone is always composed and he's really swingy. And here, uh, you know, Juris's solo is a really tasty mix of melody and chords. And the final uh, rising riff in his solo is piggybacked by the bass, uh, which also does a really nicely articulated uh, bass solo. So a nice uh, cover of Shorter's uh, original tune uh, here. And this is a classic album, yeah, Speak No Evil. Um, then uh, Five, I Remember You, the another jazz standard tune. This is gets a bossa treatment. Uh, however, uh, what he does here, as they uh, do on a tune later down with these standard ones, is uh, they don't give you the melody. And so mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're not gonna. You you might recognize yeah, if, the if you don't know the song title, you're not really gonna yeah. know what it is. You know, yeah. unless you it, unless you're a jazz player yourself and you recognize the right. chords. So yeah. uh, <laughs> here, Riley dances around the uh, melody. It starts into his own uh, kind of uh, silky and slinky solo. A lot of sixteenth notes here. Mm. A really sublime guitar solo by Juris, uh, and then a kind of uh, really deep tone that he emphasizes and uh, contrasts that with some intervals. And uh, the bass solo here is cool because it begins with some harmonizations in the bass solos, which we don't always get to hear. And then after the bass solo, when Riley comes back in, he finally gives you that melody, just in case mm. he didn't know what the tune was. Uh, to finish it out, uh, so it's it's sort of like those movies when they give you the title at the end. You yeah, know? right. The, the movie just yeah. starts, and you don't see any right. credits or anything, and then yeah. at the end, it, you know, it tells you the name of the movie. If you know <laughs> this tune, I remember you. Do, 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 do. Well, you won't hear yeah. that until you won't remember it until the end. Uh, by then, you may have forgotten it. Right. Uh, number six is "Ugly Beauty," Thelonious mm -hmm. Monk tune. And this is a really relaxed waltz of the monk tune. Uh, nice uh, tempo here. Here, uh, Juris is really masterful at making an improvised melody and playing just enough chords uh, through this. You, know, you have to think he's the only rhythm player on this here. There's no piano here, but he's complete onto himself. I mean, the accompaniment in the chords and his solo is just... Everything is 100% uh, not lacking anything. Uh, you know, he, he could play a solo gig, you know, by himself, I'm, I'm sure. And, and he's, he probably has done that. Uh, but all the parts are there. Uh, Riley's solo here is a bit more adventurous. There's some darting runs, uh, nice soft articulation, another tender bass solo before returning to the head. Uh, number seven, uh, another jazz standard here. Uh Alone together, and they do the same thing they did with I Remember You. <laughs> You're not going to get the melody. Uh, so it gets, starts out with a sax riff, and then uh, Riley goes into some fleet soloing to avoid the melody on the first verse. You get a bit of a taste of it that he throws in on the second time around, um, but he won't give you too much of it. And some halting phrases to start the guitar solo with a few uh, nicely placed overtones. This solo is really great. There's subtle bends, these effortless um, arpeggio figures, interesting rhythms. And uh, following that, this bass solo is really well-structured. 
and some nicely well-placed spaces for tension. And then they uh, trade fours for a bit before returning to the head. And finally, you get the uh, melody served up to you on a platter there. Um, so, uh, you know, interesting idea. I guess if you have an album of all mainly standards, uh, why not tease the audience a little bit? Uh, number eight, the another standard, God Bless the Child. Here we've got a, a rubato guitar intro, and then the sax and rhythm come in with the melody. It's very relaxed tempo. Uh, Riley shows his uh, super breathy kind of solo. Yeah. He does go into some brisk lines. Uh, sometimes he brings in some fragments of the melody in his solo, but it's always really tasty in his phrasing. And then Juris, he really conjures uh, uh, intense solo here. It's short, but there's really deep chord tones, bends, interesting intervals. And uh, there's a nice final sex cadenza uh, after the melody returns. And uh, then uh, the program closes out with Equinox, a John Coltrane uh, original. And uh, <clears throat> here uh, it starts out with a guitar opening over the minor chord intro uh, before the melody. Uh, and this one starts out with a really nice, deep, dark guitar solo. And uh, here, you know, this is your last uh, tune from Juris. And uh, what a loss. Uh, this mm. may be his last tune that he recorded, but uh, such a tasty player. Uh, Riley adds another fine solo here. And then when they recurrent turn to the chord intro uh, that goes over these chords of this song, the drum has some fun over here before uh, the riff comes back and restates the melody. So, yeah, a really fine recording. It shows off the great tone and melodic playing of Riley. Uh, who always sounds good, and he captures, you know, the essence of, you know, Lester Young, Stan gets these uh, previous players. Yeah, he can play in a modern style, but he he gets a lot of the beauty from the earlier era players, and uh, that's always really nice. And he's got the maturity to have space and uh, to treat melodies really nicely. And uh, what a great loss with the death of uh, Juris here. Uh, I really feel like I need to check out more of his recorded works because his playing is so tasteful. Yeah. And this, this is the, worth hearing. Well, yeah. not even just for him because everything, you know, because the yeah. Riley himself is great. It's a great, uh, yeah, it's a great album yeah. to hear. It's really fantastic. Uh, put on this recording when you have a bad day and this is your yeah. ticket to relaxation. You yeah. need it. You need to hear this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Really nice. Uh, great and uh i hope that uh juris is uh, somewhere in a better place and that the uh, higher power has given him a guitar that sounds at least as good as this one because wow yeah. what a sound yeah before you uh go on to the next album i just want to say you said that there was a you happen to put the words sax cadenza like together and i i heard it as sex cadenza and you know because I'm a pig. Oh, <laughs> I just, uh, I'm always hmm. thinking of things like this. And uh, I'm just kind of thinking, first of all, great album title, Sex Cadenza. Think about it. Okay. Mm. And um, yeah. I'm trying to picture what a sex cadenza would be like. <laughs> you know? So uh, you, 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 you can go on to the next album by yourself while I try to picture this in my mind. There. I don't know if I've ever achieved that. <laughs> Maybe the most I've ever done is the Fermata. You know? It sounds creative, though. <laughs> The Fumata. sex Fumata. I've definitely done. Yeah, I've done the Fumata. I don't know if I've done the yeah. Cadenza. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. or maybe you have a different problem that could be described by the track of the the first track of the next album, which is called "All Too Soon." Oh <laughs> yeah, there's that too. Yeah, uh, I don't suffer from maybe, that problem. Maybe that's what it's about. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the final one here is a uh, a curious uh, uh, collection of things. Uh, oh, this is a big band. Yeah. And uh, well, this is called Masters and Baron Meet Blanton and Webster. And uh, this is by the Mark Masters Ensemble on Capri Records. And uh, so uh, Mark Masters is a uh, kind of, I don't know what we'd call him, a uh, an arranger and a recomposer. He hmm. reworks other people's works uh, as uh, sort of his main thing. Uh, and uh, he's done various albums of other jazz things. And also he's done an album of Steely Dan tunes uh, reworked uh, for a larger ensemble. And uh, so you get an interesting kind of effect from doing that. Uh, he rearranges classic compositions into his own unique interpretation. And uh, you know, here, this is a tribute to uh Duke Ellington Orchestra, and uh, the sort of center of that is uh, Art Barron, who was the last trombonist hired by Duke Ellington himself in 1973, uh, who is the guest uh, performer on this album. And so this brings uh, Barron together with him, and they're uh, looking at some of the uh, compositions uh, from a certain period of uh, the Duke Ellington Orchestra. And uh, so you've got these, you know, different things shaping uh, this period here. And uh, so you would think, okay, we're going to do some Ellington tunes. Uh, and if you look at the Mark Masters Ensemble, you've got uh, four saxophones. That includes uh, Kirsten Edkins, uh, Jerry Pinter, who are uh, kind of splitting uh, Ben Webster's tenor duties They've got uh, Danny House on alto clarinet, uh, Adam Schroeder on baritone, uh, three trumpets uh, in addition to uh, the guest trumpeter, uh, Tim Higgins here, a well-known name uh, in American jazz. Uh, and that is uh, Scott Engelbright, Les Lovett, Ron Stout. Trombonists, uh, in addition to uh, Baron Les Benedict, Dave Woodley, and uh, on bass, uh, Bruce Let and uh, drums, Mark Ferber, conspicuously absent, hmm. the piano. Uh, <laughs> so how do you, yeah, how do you, Duke Ellington recording without yeah. a piano? How <laughs> do you uh, tribute uh, Duke Ellington tunes without a piano? Well, well here's how uh, they do it. This right is here. Uh, in the words of uh, Masters. He said, uh, all of the tunes are so well known that there would be no point in just going ahead and doing another arrangement of, say, take the A train. Right. Uh, so uh, but, he but says, they do, though. <laughs> I feel like I left enough that people can hear the tunes, but recompose them enough to make them something of my own and something worth recording again. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Why record or try to, you know, approach the standard that Ellington with, did with them. But uh, then he says, uh, yeah, because these recording, these classic Ellington compositions have been recorded countless times over the last 25 years. 
And uh, some people don't want to touch them because they're such classics, but I always want to use the source material to do something dramatically different. And so that's what he's uh, aiming to do here. Um, so off to the races. Uh, first tune is called All Too Soon. And uh, <laughs> we have mentioned this stuff before. You're going to get a we lot of... We were talking of, together about the, the, yeah. the plunger um, mute. Yeah. You're going to get a lot right? of Art Barron's playing here, and he is a uh, specialist of the trombone plunger mute. And so you get that mm. right away on this one. And I uh, see so off to a relaxed strings swing start with plunger muted trombone solo. Uh, and then the whole section of trombones has their uh, plungers out here, some tenor sax soloing. Uh, there's you know, some nice band arrangements behind a uh, woody bass solo too. The whole band kicks in. There's some nice trumpet screams here, but uh, the uh, trump trombone plunger is the main thing here. Yeah, uh, I want to say the the people with the plunger, they, they, these guys have a really good sense of humor because they, uh, mm -hmm. they they really use the plunger mute to like uh, extreme yeah. comic effect. It kind of yeah. <laughs> kind of it was pretty funny. Yeah, it does like, give a cartoonish kind of. Uh, yeah, until music, a yeah. certain point, which we'll get right. to. Okay. <laughs> uh, second tune is uh, Duke's Place. And here, uh, they give it a much more modern uh, rock beat uh, and some funky riffs. It's kind of fun. Uh, and then more plungers uh, yeah. <laughs> on this tune, too. Um, and then uh, after that kind of intro, you get a really nice, dirty Barry Sax solo. You know, when you get a nice mm. Barry Sax, it should be dirty. And this one is dirty yeah. enough. Um, and... Uh, playful trombone solo. The band trades with the drums. Uh, trumpet solo uh, comes in here and explores some more outside tones and bluesy phrases. This may be Hagen's here. And then the sax uh, section solely brings back the funkiness to it. Get a, a bass solo and the horns jump in. And uh, on the arrangement, they got some nice trumpet shakes, which are always cool, back from the swing era. And uh, more trombone plunger interjections. So, yeah, good fun. A more the most rocky kind of uh, interpretation uh, of a Duke Ellington tune here. Three, uh, an older standard tune. I got it bad, and that ain't good. Right. Plunger trombone <laughs> comes back. Yeah, I, I mean, at I this believe. point, I was saying, you know, how many tracks, <laughs> successor tracks, do we have to hear this on? It is very funny and it's amusing, but yeah. I was kind of like, is it, are all eleven tracks going to be like? How many tracks are there? Yeah, there are you know, more than yeah. eleven. Twelve are all 12, yeah. 12 tracks going to be like this? Yeah. Well, it turns out no, but we did get more plunger mute than it's we very needed. Plunger on heavy, yeah. Yeah. I guess you know he felt mm. he has to play uh, pay a debt to. You know, he he kind of came across member. as one of those guys who's kind of like telling this these stupid jokes and you're laughing but then after a while they're just not funny anymore you know you just kind of <laughs> right know. yeah I don't know. so we got plunger trombone here um the band comes in for some uh, key support under the solo and uh got some nice blasts before another berry solo and uh the berry goes low fast and all around the whole band comes in and then the trombone and berry speak out a few more times before a real sudden ending that he uh, has a lot of sudden endings on some of his arrangements. Um, number four, a flower is a lovesome thing. Yeah, and so is a plunger. This recorded quite often. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I stepped on your line. Go ahead. And so is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so more plunger trombone. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. And a so plunger is. is a lovesome thing. Oh, okay, um, there you go. <laughs> and then we get some uh, Harmon muted trumpet 
uh, here, adding another voice to that. Here, the the trombone is uh, really quite mournful, though. It's a little different character. And the uh, bass uh, solo adds some interludes here. The band so arrangements are nice but minimal on this number. Um, number five, we get a switch up. Uh, from yeah, we the got away from the plunger finally. Plunger, here. we got a solo trumpet taking the lead here. Yeah, uh, bright I, sounding trumpet, yeah, which is nice. This is Hagen's, I think, here. The band yeah. is really cooking behind, and then uh, we get another trumpet joining in here, too. So we've got dual trumpets uh, coming in, and the band jumps in and out with some bass solo measures. And this is another tune that sort of ends suddenly just when it gets going. Uh, then six Jack the Bear, we're back to the uh, plunger mute trombone. Uh, playing over the band uh, and riffs on the, this is a really bluesy tune and it gets the band really swinging with the really great sax arrangement on this and more trumpet checks. So this is uh, yeah. Uh, you know, really swinging bluesy number. Seven is uh, the classic Ellington uh, tune Perdido and uh, a big horn intro here. And then the clarinet takes the lead on this familiar one. And uh, the clarinet really takes off in the solo with lots of things going on and the band is backing. And then the clarinet trades off fours with the drums uh, and then the band's like, you know, swinging and screaming. So uh, pretty uh, sticking, not too far from the original script other than not having a piano here. By the way, uh, one of my earliest jazz memories is hearing uh, an eight-track tape of uh, Sarah Vaughan singing this song. That really low voice. Sarah she Vaughan, has, oh, yeah, yeah. Eight is Passion Flower. Uh, more <laughs> plunder trombone. Uh, there's some uh, little sax, sublime sax under here and band backing and some bass solo. And then uh, the trombone returns for some more. Uh, really some huge trumpet screaming here before the final trombone uh, and band statement. Then um, nine, of course, the most famous of all Ellington tunes, uh, Take the A Train. It's got a new funky intro before the familiar lines pull into the station. Get a mm. nimble modern trumpet solo with trombone backing. Then the whole band it kicks in before a trombone solo and the bass trades with the familiar ending phrases. And the uh, drums and trumpets have a spot to show off too. And you get a different ending from uh, what you're used to with this tune. Uh, you know, a nice fresh arrangement of this classic. I thought just enough of the familiar old pulled in, but uh, enough new tricks. You know what it is, but it doesn't sound like it did before. Uh, 10 is uh, Coco. And here a uh, muted trumpet kind of weaves a solo intro before the band swings in on this minor blues. There's some nice stop time sections here with the band arrangements. Uh, then the dirty plunger mute trombone comes in to add some uh, sauce or, I don't know, toilet yeah, water on top of nasty, it here. Uh... <laughs> yeah, nasty, really nasty. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, a bass solo over uh, some mysterious sax and horn lines. And the then plunger, the plunger trombone to me sounds like, you know, uh, comical suffering somehow, uh, you know, like something that's kind of over the top. It's sort of. Charlie Brown's teacher talking. Yeah. But I like it. And then uh, drum solo leads the uh, band sections to uh, coming in and closing the tune down. And then mm. uh, the final tune is uh, in a mellow tone, but before that, Track 11 is called Introduction to a Melotone, which is kind of a, a interlude tune with a 
lazy trumpet and trombone that have kind of a conversation between themselves over uh, just bass and drums to set up the final piece. And uh, in a mellotone brings the final plunger trombone uh, exposition here, but he trades off with the saxes and then the rest of the trombones join in. Another kind of meandering trumpet solo and then a sax solo uh, backed by uh, the familiar band lines. If you know this tune, they use those uh, lines uh, from the Ellington arrangement. And then the whole band joins in on the famous refrain and the trumpets really get to scream here. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, yeah, if you like uh, your trombone and you like your trombone with plungers, you really like this. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of it here uh, because, you know, it's kind of a tribute to uh, Baron's uh membership in the orchestra. Uh, you mm -hmm. might think it's got too much of that, but I think it's a fun recording. Um, yeah. If you're going to do Ellington, you, you're never going to do it as well as Ellington. So you may as well think of something uh, different. So the, the arrangements are fresh. And then of course the solos are, you know, in a much more modern, especially the trumpet solos. Hagen's concept is not, you know, something like uh, Cootie Williams or someone from mm -hmm. the, uh, the uh, Duke Ellington Orchestra, although um, Barron's trombone is much more in, you know, the original character. Uh, however, the overall thing may seem a little strange with no piano, dep right. depending on uh, your reference point. Uh, so, yeah, you may be polarized on this one. I found it kind of fun. Um, it was and, fun. Too, way too many plunger mutes for me. Yeah, was, I mean, mutes, one yeah. or two tracks would have been okay, but it just keeps coming back. I was kind of, yeah. you know. And if you like... I'm um, thinking of that Saturday Night Live routine, you know, not yeah, enough cowbell. Needs, more cowbell. <laughs> cowbell <yeah. laughs> more plunger. Yeah. More plunger. Um, <laughs> which is really interesting because um, I was uh, I was playing trumpet for a tune uh, a couple of years ago, uh, St. James Infirmary. Which is right. uh, I went down to St. James Infirmary and it's like so um I had my old Trump my uh plunger mute and I pulled it out of my kiss and it was dry rotted, you know, it was just cracked. Ah. And mm. then uh so I said, Well, you know, I need a uh I need a new plunger. So I went and wouldn't you know that the Japanese have technic technologically redesigned the toilet plunger to be more efficient. But it has this sort of extra appendage that does not work on the trumpet because it's sort of grown this tulip-like type of thing. No. And uh, yeah, so <laughs> I had to uh, wait till a friend of what, mine- What's uh, good for your toilet isn't good for your no, trumpet. No, it's not I good guess. for your trumpet. So I had to wait for uh, uh, a friend to go back to uh, the States uh, to pick me up some authentic American plungers uh, yeah. to use for my performance. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anyway, this, yeah, you should have written a letter to the manufacturer saying you ruined the plunge. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, yeah. at least I got one uh, good one that I could actually use on my sink, and then I have two that I can use on my trumpet. So yeah. uh, you never know when you need that plunger, and yeah. Uh, yeah, for a while, you know, that sort of had uh, become passe. But uh, now there are some people using the plungers again for their solos on brass instruments. So that's kind of nice. But yeah, I'm always so, happy to hear that, but just not excessively. It's not excessively. Yeah. Uh, if you're, you know, if you like to hear these re imagined um, arrangements, uh, check out uh, masters ensemble. Uh, if you like Steely Dan, check out their uh, arrangements of uh, Steely Dan's tunes, because, you know, in pop music, uh, Steely Dan had some really out there jazz chords and things. Yeah. Uh, and they take the same approach, um, sometimes using more or less of the original uh, 
song and then reimagining it, which I think, you know, it's a fair approach and uh, interesting to see. And uh, I'm just happy to see, you know, larger ensembles performing things. So if you're an Ellington fan or you like to uh, hear uh, teasing versions of something that's somewhat familiar, check this uh, recording out. Masters and Baron meet Blanton and Webster, the Mark Masters Ensemble on Capri Records. Okay. And that's all for this week. Where, how can people uh, get in touch with us and help us? That's right. Um, <laughs> please do. If you've made it this far, uh, it must be worth a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> that's why we didn't mention it at the beginning, because you might, yeah. might not have thought Apple so. <laughs> Podcasts or whatever. Give us a like, uh, thumbs up, five stars. Uh, helps us get noticed. Uh, or yeah. uh, do write a, a comment. We haven't got any comments. No one has bothered to type on yeah. uh, the Apple Podcasts. Uh, so tell us what you think, good or bad. I guess you're not making uh, any inroads until someone really sends you a bad comment. So yeah, yeah send us anything, <laughs> good or bad, whatever. Uh, we we did, did get one really thoughtful email from someone we know, actually, though. Because Yeah, but, we've got uh, some direct emails that end. are nice. Yeah. And uh, we've got some uh, other, well, you know, context for interviews and things which are coming up uh, soon. Mm. But just from regular listeners, we, you know, We'd like to hear from you if you enjoy it. Tell us what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, uh, what we should uh, explain more or anything you'd like to contact us about. Uh, or if you want to know uh, more about Knob Creek and uh, other whiskeys, uh, we can help you out with that. We too. can help you out a little bit. Yeah, I guess we could, huh? Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we know we more could. than we should about those things. I know, I know a lot more than I should about these things. Mm. Um, yeah, anyway, any questions uh, or comments that you might have that you want to go direct to us, uh, that contact is adult music podcast all one word at gmail.com we'd be happy to hear from you we'll certainly reply our host is uh, Podbean. if you can't see our uh, links to spotify and apple music you can go direct to Podbean and look for us and everything is uh, searchable there or uh, check out our preferred streaming platform which is Deezer, where you can find this podcast as well as the full playlist, all of the music. Uh, everyone is numbered for the episode. This is episode number 20. So if you search for Adult Music Podcast Episode 20 playlist, all the tunes, all the albums here will be there in sequential order. You can just click on them, sit back, and listen to about six hours of music, and uh, you'll be all set uh, before or after the podcast. And uh, yeah, so everything's there conveniently located. Hey, music got us through the uh, the, the um, pandemic, and it'll it'll do the same for you. It's yeah, it's um, you, you, bring on <laughs> those virus variants. I've got yeah. a lot more stuff to listen to. Yeah, I know. God. <laughs> all right, we're, we're not wishing that on anyone. No, but we are. We're, we're perfectly anyone, happy to be locked up, though. So you know, that's right. Not in a prison in our house with our stereos. That's right. Right. Yeah. More music. More time. Uh, yeah. But hopefully things will be opening up soon. I just find music more interesting than anything that people have to say. I guess including us, but, you know, whatever. Listen to well, the music, everybody. It's the, good. Spread the tunes and yeah. uh, happiness will follow. Yeah. So I think, thanks the Buddha, for, I think the Buddha said that. I think he did. Yeah. yeah. It's in the Dhammapada. <laughs> 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 so that's it for episode 20. We'll be back again 
with episode 21 next week. And uh, we'd like to hear from you, uh, but at least stay tuned for episode 21 coming up next week. So have a good week and we'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.